2: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Ben Halls on his debut novel, The Quarry. Ben Halls is a London-based writer and journalist. He worked in pubs, off-licences and several minimum-wage jobs before deciding to return to school to pursue his passion in writing. The Quarry, which we're going to talk about today, is Ben's debut novel. Ben, welcome to Little Atoms.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: I want to ask you first of all, as I I always do, how you would describe The Quarry. The most obvious thing to say first of all is it's described there as a novel and it could also be described as a collection of short stories, I guess.
3: Yeah, I'd, I tend to go for an interconnected short story collection, because it's not... It's got a togetherness. It's all based in the same place. There are so many characters who overlap. It has a much more of a togetherness than if you read some collections. not that there's anything wrong with not having that. It's just not how I wanted to do it. And so... It reads a, a bit more cohesive. You definitely, by the time you get to the end, you get a better understanding of character, of place, of you're in a different place than when you started. And I think that what makes it a novel. So it's kind of in this nice little grey spot in between.
2: The quarry is the sort of titular housing estate that the characters either live on now or have in the past. It's a fictional West London estate, but what sort of places was it influenced by?
3: Uh it's just a mishmash of places I've been around London. Like I used to work in Northall, which is, you know, right on the outskirts, and it's it's close enough in that it's urban, but it's just far enough away that you don't feel like a part of proper like central London. And so it's kind of inspired by that, but it's like the geography is a lot of where my nan used to live in Bexley Heath. And like the pubs are all real pubs dotted around sort of London. The Grange, which is in there, is actually a pub in Surbiton. Uh, The Falcon is a pub in High Wycombe. So it's kind of just a place I kind of mishmash together from all the little bits of London I know well. I didn't base it on one specific area. I just wanted to take things I could find the little cool details in to give a place a bit more feeling of realness and familiarity and just put them all together into this one area. And I came up with the Quarry Lane Estate.
2: And it is, I mean, it's fictional, but... You've sort of established it that it's sort of like very much an outskirts, like quite far west estate, although it could be be any of those other places that you mentioned, because London is, I'm I'm from the Midlands originally, I come from a town where all the estates are on one side of the town, and then there's bits that are nice on the other side of town. But London, I was amazed to find when I moved there, was one of these places where everywhere, every single district of London has estates estates that are often surrounded by incredible privilege
3: oh yeah it's london is quite often characterized for a lot of reasons of how you can have million pound houses next to you know very impoverished council estates i think i wanted to make it a bit more on the outskirts because there's still this kind of dream that if you can get into Central, there's still, you know, money there, the, the roads are still paved there with gold and stuff. It gives the place a sense that yeah, you're a part of it, you're in London, you are a Londoner, but also there's this slight otherness to it. It's this slight outsiderness, and it's something like, if I'm just get out of here and get into central proper, get into London proper, then things will get better.
2: Tell me how the stories came together then, over sort of what time period these were written.
3: Ah, oh, it's a while. I wrote the first draft of Ham, which is the first story in the book. In probably I was still an undergrad, I was, so I probably would have been about twenty thirteen. And then I was really, really lucky. I got to go to Kingston University and do their two year MFA creative writing program. And for most of that, I focused on fleshing, like fleshing the stories out, writing more of them, building up this world. And I submitted that as my dissertation in. uh late 2016 and then I met um while I was at Kingston I met my publisher a like fantastic woman called Charmaine Lovegrove who um, runs Dialogue Books but I met her before she had that imprint at the time she ran a scouting company and she came in and did a talk and at the end she kind of said does anyone want to pitch and I immediately said yep and I pitched her the quarry and she was interested. And then I probably sent that to her when it was sort of marked and I was confident it was good. Because with any of this stuff, you know, you get one shot on someone's desk. And when I was confident it could, you know, take advantage of that. I sent it in beginning of 2017. But in that time, she'd been able to set up dialogue books. And so I then sat with sort of about six, seven of the stories finished for about two long years and just kind of waited and and worked on other stuff and and then uh, sort of end of last year, middle of last year it kind of was like, right, we're in the pipeline and I made a few big edits, I added uh, three new stories in and now the book is as it is so it's been like seven odd years which is a bit scary when I say it out loud but it's, yeah, been a long journey but I got here
2: and what's it what's it been like working with Charmaine and Dialogue then? Because we we've been lucky enough to cover a number of their books over the over the past year, and they're, they're you know they're publishing some like brilliant voices that, that I, I feel wouldn't ordinarily have have been published without Charmaine's backing.
3: Oh yeah, they're fantastic. You meet people in life, and you just realise you you are born to do this. this. isn't a job for you. This is something you do, and you happen to get paid for it. The amount of passion they have, the amount of dedication they have to to, to trying to publish things, which, as you say, wouldn't normally otherwise find a home. The way they bring in a lot of groundbreaking international and translation um, stories as well. It's if I ever go anywhere else as a writer, it's going to be really weird because, you know, they really trust you as a writer. Like I didn't have any substantive editing to the manuscript to the point where like me and my agent had to like carefully write an email going, are you? sure because we wanted to make a few changes are you sure you don't want to dive in and but they trusted it Millie Seawood their PR person has had me everywhere and she is absolutely fantastic editorial was painless it's like I can go on and on and I'm not just saying that because they've published my book I'm saying it because it's true like at Kingston when Charmaine came in I actually I kind of had stop going to some of those talks you get at uni it's just full of dour people coming in and sort of saying well there's no money in publishing this is a vanity degree what else you got going on because you'll need something but she came in and was immediately like here is how you get out there here is how you can publish things here's how you can make a living out of this just full energy and that energy has not dropped from the day i met her doing that to today and i bet she's been like that since she was born
2: I mentioned dialogue books is publishing voices that we don't often hear from. One of the mm. most obvious things about this collection of short stories is that the narrators are men, but they're men from a background, uh, men suffering from you know poverty, dislocation, isolation. But all of their all of the issues with the men in these stories, in the main, are compounded by. Their ideas of their masculinity, aren't they? Yeah, I
3: I think my brief I gave myself when I was working on these stories was I wanted to write so I suppose emotionally astute guys, emotionally astute men, because I'm like a big fan of like traditional masculine writing, and by that I'm just using the biggest catchall term for stuff like Richard Ford, Ernest Hemingway, you know Raymond Carver, that kind of stuff, and um. In so many of those pieces, you get to like the point of like epiphany, catharsis, whatever you want to call it, where the character is gonna emote and like show you what's been going on under the hood and like have a little revelation and this stuff in literature that you're meant to is meant to articulate the way we're all feeling in ways we can't quite put it, and then they normally stop dead and don't do it and I wanted to write about these everyday guys, but give them that moment even if they don't say it out loud to another character show it in their own heads and i thought that is a really important thing to do because you know as a society we're getting better but as a society a lot of guys are still feeling like you can't speak out or fight or don't know how to speak out
2: i wanted to talk about writing about there's 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 often outbreaks of violence in the book as well and and just something about writing that violence
3: it's really hard to write a fight scene (laughs) um do you mean more like nuts and bolts, or just kind of what inspired? Yeah, I mean, it?
2: I mean, well, both really. We'll talk about what inspired some of the some of the stories, some of the people in a bit. But yeah, just like, just like how you dealt with that, basically, you know, how how you. I mean, because the the thing that I wanted to talk about later on, and perhaps we could we could sort of bring this in, is that these are what really sticks out about the book as well is that a lot of these people are unsympathetic characters, but mm. you write them with a lot of empathy, and I think that's a that's a real skill, you know, especially considering this is a a debut novel and and that sort of linked to the fact that, you know, often these characters that we are in their heads, you know, we are feeling sympathetic for them will suddenly engage in sudden bouts of violence and that sort of throws you out often a lot. And I just wanted to wanted to think about perhaps how you I mean, I guess what am I trying to say? How you dealt with that, how you dealt with in these characters' heads yourself.
3: I think I I never wanted to be gratuitous with any anything like that because I'd, it just wouldn't seem genuine because, yeah, violence is out there. Sometimes you look for it so, or sometimes these characters might want to look for it. But all in all, no one wants to take a kick in, so quite often you don't risk it. But So I think when those moments came, because you are so close in the head, I'd almost describe writing it as almost more like character acting. As in, you want to be in there and think, right, I know this character so well. What would they do? And how would they do it? And is this justified? Or does it feel awkward and disingenuous? Or like, you know this person, would they actually do this? Are they capable of it? And so I think I asked myself that a lot when there was violence. And when it came to actually writing it, honestly, I think I just played it out and then just described it, how I thought it had come out. Which sounds like the silliest thing to say about writing, but it's the only way to kind of do it. Because when, when you're kind of in those moments with like a bit of adrenaline and everything's a little bit of a blur. So you can sort of, you just get the nuts and bolts over and, but just, you've got to make sure you've earned it.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
2: You're listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, today I'm talking to Ben Halls, and we're talking about his debut novel, The Quarry. And Ben, yeah, let's move on to what influenced some of the stories, where these people come from.
3: I think I spent the age of like 18 to 24, as you said in the intro, I like worked in a couple of pubs, I worked in uh, you know, a couple of offices doing nothing, I worked in a couple of off-licences, um, and especially around that time, it was around, or in that was like the last big recession, which was hard on everyone. I think in one, two, two and a half year, Gap was made redundant four times. It was a tough time. A lot of the characters are sort of inspired by that, those rough socioeconomic times. And I think the, re- the way short stories are quite good at telling it is you could take snapshots. Like a lot of the characters you can boil down to, you know, make a, a feeling or something I saw or something I saw in someone I knew, something I saw them going through. And you can kind of immediately focus in on on the conflict, on the rub, and you can sort of extract that and then build a character around it, which is a good vehicle to explain this one thing. And then from that, I could kind of try and build the stories out of. Like, for instance, like the bouncer in uh, Little Ones, the second story, the very, very loosely person it's based off, or not even the person it's based off, the thing it's based off, so I was chatting to someone when I worked at a pub, and, like, they were a pretty tough, scary person, but they were, like, so emotionally intelligent. And, like, if you caught him on his own, like, in the way the conversation plays out with Prescott in that story, he knew what to say, and he had it figured out. But he wouldn't speak up, and you'd never really know why. And he wouldn't talk about how he'd what happened in his life to get him to that point. So I built this character around him, which you see play out in the story, because the tragedy for me of that character is... He's probably the most intelligently emotionally intelligent one of the lot but he won't talk to anyone.
2: It's also it's and also great. I mean I know it's obviously based on a real person but what he also plays this role as the bouncer somebody who's quiet and on the outside and is also able to comment on the other stories, you know, he, he sees yeah. characters from the from the other stories and is is able to give a sort of like especially considering that story comes directly after after ham where we've we've seen paul the the narrator of Ham you know get into a fight into the in the pub and then immediately in the next story we take a step back and are able to observe that from the outside yeah i
3: I mean it works well and I, I like those two stories opening because I think it does give a reader the idea of how this book is going to work, how these are connected you can immediately see the kickoff incident from one story and another but yeah i I like that outsider view. Um a lot of the characters are the same.
2: I just want to talk about some of the some of the issues that the, the um uh, the, the characters are facing in this book. There's I mean we're gonna talk about some of the books that might have influenced this one later on. Mm-hmm. Um I don't think there's a lot of writing around now about these sort of characters. But there has of course been over the years lots of great writing about you know, working class men and the and the struggles they might face. But now there are things that are unique. Like obviously, we've been, like you said, living through recessions and and years of austerity. Um, suddenly, this is a world of you know zero hours contracts, precarity in terms of employment. Um, but at the same time, there is all these. There's always been the pub, but now that pub might have you know high stakes gambling machines in it.
3: Uh, yeah, I think I think in the uh, story Modernization, which is, a lot of people like it, which is nice, because was the one I was a bit unsure of, but he's um, got a policy going back to do the Quarry Lane routes, and he grew up there, and he wasn't sure, and I think I want to do that because it's something uh, my grandma and grandad used to say about the areas, that like when they went back, they'd see it change like that, and... I think for me, it, like, it, it happens there, but it's a lot of stories. It's going back to the Falcon. And I think a lot of these how the world has changed things can be, you know, sewn up in that pub. And I think back to like, you know, local pubs I've known and stuff as well with this. But it's as you say, how all of a sudden, rather than having like cheeky one pound quiz machine, there might be a 500 pound fruit machine or a 100 pound fruit machine in there. And how rather than it being an actual local pub, it's owned by a chain and you can get two for a fiver every day, and drinks promotions. And it just, it just like, chips away at community a little bit. You know, rather than have a meat raffle on a Sunday, you've got boil in a bag, roast dinners. And I think that little bit of decay hurts people, and it kind of really hammers home that, as I said, a lot of these people a lot of these characters have ambitions of getting out and getting somewhere. And it just feels like the net of like central London, like where prosperity is, is closing or even that they're stuck in a gulf because you've got jobs and money in central London. And then when you take, you know, the 45 minute hour commuter trains out to the countryside, what I think was maybe on the outskirts of London is now there as like people retreat looking for a bit more space and greener grass and different schools and whatever. And I think these people are left in that, golf and the only things filling it are you know big companies who specialize in offering you know cut rate products cut rate services and it drags the whole thing down it doesn't feel friendly anymore and that's something I try to get over because I've seen this happen in a lot of places and it just it just stops feeling friendly then that affects you when you're in it and
2: I'll ask you now then what other writers might have been an influence on this book
3: I think, as I said, I like uh, I like a lot of traditional masculine writing, and that's just what I'm calling it. I don't know how else to describe it. Um, and I like short stories, and I was incredibly, incredibly, incredibly lucky enough to um, be able to study in America for a bit. Where um, So a lot of my influences on putting it together are like American short story writers. Yeah, I think people like Raymond Carver were big influences, especially later stuff when his editor stopped going or when he broke up with his editor was a big influence. Although it's not as romanticised, I I tried to ape some of like the early Ernest Hemingway, just Spanish waiters chatting stories. I tried to make a little bit structurally little ones like a, the way it runs a bit of a copy of a clean, well lighted place, which I don't know if that worked, but in my head it made sense. But then even just wanting to imprint voice onto it because that was super important to me that they didn't all sound the same and i love literature with uh strong voice whether it's something like girl by jamaica kincaid or train sporting or more than collar for like more scottish stuff um i read uh it's just like a crime book i picked up on holiday and i think it's called saturday's child i cannot remember who it's by but they had two characters, one written in the Queen's English, one written like in local slang for the two main characters. And like that was super effective. Um, this is like when you're in a car and someone gives you the cable and says, play a song, and you forget every song that's <laughs> ever been written. Um, I think it was important to me to get proper voice in and give these characters a unique voice for how it came over. But then, yeah, structurally, like I, classic American short stories... And in terms of voice, making sure it sounded like people sound and not, you know, written in, in high Oxford comma English. That's my final answer.
2: <laughs> to finish off, then, can I get you to, to read us a, a little bit of the quarry?
3: Uh, you can. I'll tell you what part I'm going to read. It's not a part I normally read. But, do you know, cause I, I chatted a bit about wanting to give these characters their sort of epiphany moment and let them talk out loud. It's so like if you go and look at, by Raymond Carr, the two short stories, The Bath and A Small Good Thing. A Small Good Thing is what he originally wrote before Gordon Leash edited the hell out of it. Mm-hmm. And it, ke- it keeps those epiphany moments in, and it's a better story for it. Um, I should have said that under what inspired you answer. And so I, I've always taken to heart, you should show these kind of moments. And I'm going to do the moment like that from a story called Fix. Fix is a story, it's a spiraling gambling addict. And he, you know, loses his what's in his account. He pawns his phone and loses that. And so as you're reading along, like when I was reading it, the copy editor was kind of going, well, this is ridiculous. Who would do this? And oh, he's now just repeating. And he's just said this, but smaller. I was like, no, this is kind of the way a gambling addict's brain works. One of the offices I worked in had a bookies next door and I'd always come in, get a tinny, watch the races. You could kind of see someone on a bad day. This is the moment of him trying to kind of explain to the reader how he's just lost all his money. Fuck's sake. A week's worth of money and now a phone. The fuck am I going to tell Emma? She doesn't get it. Nobody gets it. Things that when you can watch your cash disappear from your hand, you got to be a proper idiot to keep pissing it away in those fucking machines. It's not like that, though. It's like a night out on the piss, Yeah. You have a few drinks, have a few laughs, and you get to the point where you know you're already going to feel dead dog rough the next morning. But you say to hell with it. This is the time of my fucking life. This thirst comes over you. You keep drinking because you think if you stop, sit out around, you'll sober up. The funnels stop and you're back to real life. You talk deep and you talk bullshit and you talk about all the ways you want to make your life better. And you think of ways to get out there and do it. It lights this fire inside of you. Maybe when the night is over, you stagger back, pour yourself one of those home-measure drinks, which is basically just a glass of whiskey or vodka or whatever you've got laying around with a splash of coke in it to make it look like you're at least trying to ease off. You sit on your front doorstep and drink and chain-smoke cigarettes and think of all the ways which your life is going to be better now. You've got it all figured out. You've broken the back of the beast thanks to the monkey on yours and the future is only going to get better. You might pour another and then one more and then the sky starts to stain purple as the sun comes up. Streetlights blending into it as it gets lighter and lighter and you think, nah, maybe I won't even go to bed. I feel fucking alive and I know what I want to do. But it's five in the morning and the world won't be up until about eight or nine. So you think, all right, I'm not that pissed. I'll get a few hours kip and set an alarm and then up and fucking at them. Then you wake up a few hours later, glass of spirit by your bed and a bit of food you don't remember even cooking spilled out on the sheets. And the rest of the day you spend sweating and chucking up bile. The high horse has gone, and now your hungover arse has got to deal with the fact that it is all an illusion. You might have wanted to fucking change your life, change everything about it and seen and out, but really it's all been chasing that out, which has fucked you up beyond all belief. You swear off it and try and get yourself better, but you know that next week you'll be chasing the dreams in the bottom of pint glasses again. This is my hangover.
2: I've been talking to Ben Halls. We've been talking about his debut novel, The Quarry which is out now in the UK from Dialogue Books. Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you ever much for having me on. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by ACAST. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.